0: Greetings, Parish Orphans of Retrograde. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Today, coming to you with live news on Leap Day, February 29th, 2024, there's a big announcement. An anonymous cardinal has released a, yet another critique of Francis under the pen name Deimos, which means something like the the people. Deimos won was the late Cardinal Pell, who in March of 2022, almost two years to the date, criticized Pope Francis for being harsh, for being ambiguous, for taking an anti-doctrinal stance, and for being vindictive, more than harsh, vindictive as well. Now, Deimos II, certainly we know it is not Cardinal George Pell because he's passed on in between March 2022 and the last day of February 2024. Initial guesses are Cardinal Raymond Leo Burke, who has, I'd say, crossed swords with Francis, but that doesn't apply. He has attempted to, as one of the College of Cardinals, advise Francis, and this has not worked. Francis has expressed rage with him and vindictiveness on several accounts. There are other candidates too, but I think it is Cardinal Burke. We won't overly speculate there. We want to just talk about What we know from this document, now remember that there is a history of sharing a pen name even with folks that fall ill or die. If you remember Publius from your education about the American Constitution during the great constitutional ratification debates from late 1786 until June of 1788, when um, three states pretty much all at once were the the final ratifier of the U.S. Constitution— A big debate was raging for about a year and a half in America. And in New York Gazette, there was a pseudonymous author called Publius. The three authors behind the pseudonym Publius, who made arguments for the ratification of the new constitution and the replacement of the Articles of Confederation, were John Jay, who wrote the first few letters and then fell ill, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Madison's really the genius behind all of the most famous Publius letters, uh, namely 10, 39, 51, um, number 78 is is Hamilton, but it's it's famously bad, says I. All the, the famous decent ones are by Madison. The point here is that John Jay fell ill after, I think, writing the first six letters. And he's included on a uh, corpus of some 90 letters as one of the three authors, even though he wrote relatively unimportant letters, and then fell ill. Well, the late Cardinal George Pell penned this March 2022 pseudonymous critique of Pope Francis, and now someone has taken up his quill, probably Cardinal Burke, if I had to guess, under the name Deimos II, and has penned a more specific problem with set of problems with Pope Francis. Seven critiques very specifically. I want to give those to you, line item. As soon as this show gets going, we are late in the 11th hour of the Francis Pontificate. He spent yesterday in Fate Benefratelli Hospital. That's where my daughter Abby was born on Tiber Island in the heart of Rome. But it was reported he was at Gemelli Hospital, which is north of Rome. That one I also know well because my daughter Abby was moved there Shortly after she left the hospital the first time in Rome, um, they're very they're far away from each other. You got to take a, a train, not just the metro. So Francis went to Fate Benefratelli Hospital, and I think was released shortly after he was admitted. But he's been in and out of hospital for some time um, over the course of late 2023 and early 2024, which all means that it's appropriate for us Catholics, the laity priests, bishops, and especially the College of Cardinals to be talking about what do we need in Pope number 267. No, it's not electoral politics, but yes, it looks a little bit and feels a little bit like electoral politics when we're getting ready to come into a the equivalent of a lame duck period and then in interregnum when we're, not us, but the Cardinals are selecting a new pope. It's a bit like that. I want to throw some things at you in a second, but before I I say those, I would just leave you with this notion, and then we'll get started. Don't be overly allergic, parashorvans and retrogrades, to characterize what is needed in a future leader of the church, just because it's a divine organization composite with a human organization all human organizations need human leaders the the pope is a mortal man fallible like you and me i'm going to conclude the show with a few words on the pope's fallibility and yes the divinity of the institution of the church is represented only by the pope in terms of his he is the single sign of the church's unity his, you know, and th- this is spoken of directly and immediately with his plenary capacity when he speaks ex cathedra. It's happened between two and five times. We're not even sure how many, which is odd. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But ordinarily, the Pope's a fallible guy and, you know, bespeaks more... To human leadership, which is why he controls the disciplines of the church. He can order all of the bishops and all the priests in the world to put their will shave their hair into the tonsure, things like that. Discipline, liturgy. Unfortunately, Pope Francis has a, a unitary control, sovereign control over discipline. You, you've heard me argue that, but at the end of today's show, I'm going to be talking about why I'm not so worried about the doctrinal coup d'état that Pope Francis has attempted on behalf of a very specific agenda of kingmakers, which put him there, which are allied with the deep state. They are the deep church. It doesn't bother me because doctrinally, the Pope represents more the human dimension of the church, not the divine aspect of the church, except when he speaks ex cathedra, something a lot of Catholics have forgotten in the time when they needed to remember it most. This 11-year pontificate Number two sixty six. So, all I'm saying is don't recoil. I mean, maybe maybe what I'm saying is ultimately wrong, or you disagree with it. But don't recoil and say, "Oh, this isn't electoral politics." You're treating, let's say, the pope um, dies and we, the College of Cardinals, on our behalf, replace him sometime in 2024. You're treating it like 2024, the general American election year. No, there's there's important, appreciable differences. Yes, but but that, that doesn't mean that there aren't overlaps as well. There are differences, yes, but overlaps as well. So let's get to those shortly. We'll talk about those in a minute. First, I, I do want to remind you That in an election year, you need to remember what happened four years ago. You need to remember what was happening in an ongoing way four years ago. You need to remember what happened as the election, the general election, came nearer four years ago. Three and a half years ago now, but it'll be four years ago by the time the election is truly near. Your true republic is your state. Locality matters. This is the number one social teaching in the church called subsidiarity. Where you live matters. And place does not mean this continent we call, semi-continent, we call the United States of America. That's not place. Place means your city or your corner of the city. You should be in one you're proud to call home. And you should not be proud to call home. California, New York, Illinois, home. I'm sorry, you just shouldn't. It's that simple. I could give you aesthetic reasons why maybe not, but I think New York has a, a cool history and much more culture than a place like California. But even if you you love upstate New York and Legend of Sleepy Hollow and all that, it's a dangerous place to be because your place is run by people and people get the government they deserve. And it's run by crazy people. That's why it's a blue state. So get out of your blue state, get to a red state today, go to realestateforlife.org and get out. You have every chance now. You have every reason to consider yourself warned after the beer bug. The last catastrophe that co-attended an election year. There's nothing in that fact pattern that suggests that it is going to be single, a singleton, a unique world event. If anything, Agenda 2030 strongly insinuates that it will be uh, just the beginning. We've had many, many, many folks like Klaus Schwab say this is just the beginning. All the way up to 2030, the world's going to be changing and it's not going back. The best you can do is get to a red state today. Go to www.realestateforlife.org. You're also going to start seeing me talking a brand new product on this channel. It's one of the few that I really believe in. It's called Greco gum. It's mastic gum. You chew it to get a better jaw. This goes along with the masculinism and the patriarchy component of this channel. Chewing mastic gum is a 3,000 years old plus practice stemming from the Greeks. There's only one place in the world where you can get mastic gum. It's basically the sap of a tree. It makes men's jaws strong and it promotes gut health. It's very, very old. This is something probably Plato and Aristotle and Socrates did. It gives you a good jaw. The jaw is a muscle. You need to exercise it. I tell men in the masculinism patriarchy component of this channel, one of the four pillars, you need to lift weights. Unless you're disabled, you need to be lifting weights. Training as a protector. It should be every day or nearly every day. Not the same exercises, but you need, need to be lifting weights six days of the week. Well, similarly, you got you to gotta train your jaw muscle because the main part in keeping a marriage together, aside from relying on the graces of the sacrament, which are supernatural, is a natural part. Maintaining attraction between and among two spouses. It's important that men do their part Chewing mastic gum is uh, uh, an actual help. It's like an exercise. You chew it for an hour or two hours a day. It's good for your stomach. It's excellent for your jaw. Try it for a month and you'll see. This is Greco gum. You're going to hear me formally endorse them um, after I work a few things out with them. But I, I love it. I chew it and it's good for you. And it's really good for your appearance. Now, we are on the last day on leap day of a leap year of February, of course, in 2024. We are in the 11th hour of the Francis pontificate. He's in and out of the hospital all the time. No need to play dumb here. We've been ready for quite some time for the next conclave. And the most important question is whether or not the Cardinals are. Every American election year, and again, I told you, I make no apologies for some of the overlap in analysis between electoral politics and um, conclave electoral politics. There are conclave electoral politics at work. I'm going to, like I say, address this little three-part conversation I was having with um, my friends Jay Dyer and Trent Horn online about just how politicking are the politics, how politic are the politics of conclaves. How politic can they be before they start running foul of violations of the safety and the charisms of the pontificate? And I'd say they can be quite political, and they have been lots throughout our history. So we don't need to be diminishing wallflowers or whatever the term is about admitting this. Let's get into it. About late, late, late last night. I was up very late last night and I saw the story break because it was early in the morning in Rome. This is a new dailycompass.com article. I saw a few of my friends on Twitter tweet it out, and here it is. A profile of the next pope writes Cardinal. Two years after the text signed Damos later revealed to have been the late Cardinal George Pell, a new anonymous document linked to the first. Conceptually linked to the first, to find seven priorities that the next conclave should have in order to repair the confusion and crisis created by this pontificate. Confusion and crisis has been experienced as emanating from the pontificate before in Roman Catholicism. This profoundly, I say no. You've heard me say no lots. I taught church history for eight years or seven years, eight years if you include what I've done online. And it's it's very clear to me. I haven't gone through with a fine-tooth comb and checked every one of the 265 predecessors of Pope Francis. But what I've done is gone through the with a pretty fine-tooth comb all the periods of time that the popes allegedly got a little bit sus and compared, okay, what's the kind of crime of this? Most of them are personalty, personal crimes, personal shortcomings of the popes. There were some Borgia popes that were politicking in the office. That's more like Francis. We're not talking about his personal crimes. We're talking about him, and Demos too, will be talking about him bringing to bear a worldly political agenda on the office. The seat, the chair of Peter. That's like what's happened before, but worse. In March 2022, the article reads, in an anonymous text, appeared, signed Demos, entitled The Vatican Today. That raised a number of serious questions and criticisms regarding the pontificate of Pope Francis. Conditions in the church since that text appeared have not materially changed, much less improved. They have worsened. Thus, the thoughts offered here are intended to build on those original reflections in light of the needs of the Vatican tomorrow. Okay, so it's, it's straightforward enough what I think old, old Cardinal Burke is saying here. I'm not sure it's him. I have no private indication. Just speculating, like everyone else, this is probably Raymond Cardinal Leo Burke. A concluding years of a pontificate, any pontificate, are a time to assess the condition of the church in the present and the needs of the church and her faithful going forward. It is clear that the strength of Pope Francis's pontificate is the added emphasis he has given to compassion toward the weak, outreach to the poor and marginalized, concern for the dignity of creation and the environmental issues that flow from it, and efforts to accompany the suffering and alienated in their burdens. Now, this is politic. Does this do anything for anyone? I don't know. Maybe the extremely suggestible out there the credulous, I I don't know why introductory paragraphs in a, among a, a highly literate audience like this need to be included. I don't. We know why a critique letter like this would be penned. It's got only one reason, because there are existential problems with the Francis pontificate. And to me, it's a bit pedestrian. I'm critiquing the critique to say, oh, well, Francis is good at compassion to the weak, outreach to the poor and marginalized, concern for the dignity of creation and the environmental issues that flow from it, and efforts to accompany the suffering and alienate. Now, if if this were some moral rule of, of supernatural law or of natural law, then anytime you level a critique, you must gird it with compliments to build someone, then fine. I do it. I'm, I'm an obedient guy, but I don't think it is. I would just challenge that in a, in a postmodern post-Christian era like ours, even brave Cardinals like Deimos II, whoever this is, feel compelled to, you know, caress with the same hand you slap with or with the opposite hand, at least. And I, I just think it's pedestrian. It, when you criticize your brother, or even your father. It does not imply that the seven critiques you offer are all-consuming. It does not imply that offering seven critiques means an impossibly all-consuming, all-exhaustive list. It doesn't mean that they have no strengths. Take your pick of serial mass murderers Any one of them has gifts from God, talents, good things that he did in his life. Okay, so let's get that out of our system. When you're like, look, you need to stop slapping me in the face, Bully. You don't have to say, but I like your shoes. It's just not necessary. But we're unsure at this point, and this is what I'm going to address at the end of the show, what we're allowed to say to a pontificate that's more than a little wayward. If, if Benedict 16 aired, a lot of us would be more comfortable critiquing him because everyone understands that our critiques of Benedict 16 would be, would assume fellow travelership. With Francis, we all know that we're wondering what, What's this guy's deal? What's this Holy Father's deal? Jim Kaviesel, who endorses a more, more normy ecclesiology and in, in view of the historiographical church than I do, probably called Pope Francis the Rothschild Pope. That shocked me, not because I don't, not because one, I don't know exactly what it means, but two, not because I probably object, but because this is Jim Kaviesel. Who gives talks at places like Franciscan University, Normie Central, okay, Feminist Catholicism Central, used to be Pope Splaining Central. Now they've come off that a little bit. Normie Catholicism, kind of the new cultural Catholicism. Franciscan University, places like that. He talks, and he called Pope Francis the Rothschild Pope. So this, this is pretty crazy. Um. The shortcomings of this pontificate are equally obvious. An autocratic, at times seemingly vindictive, I I don't, you just say vindictive. I want to address this in a sec, but I, I don't want to interrupt paragraphs at least. An autocratic, at times seemingly vindictive style of governance. A carelessness in matters of law. An intolerance for even disrespectful disagreement. And most seriously, a pattern of ambiguity in matters of faith and morals, causing confusion among the faithful. Confusion breeds division and conflict. It undermines confidence in the word of God, it weakens evangelical witness, and the result today is a church more fractured than at any other time in our recent history. Now, three quick notes on this paragraph. And again, it's 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 a well-done article and it's it's hard to do this and to balance faithfulness with a sharp critique, but but point number 1 First line, an autocratic, at times, seemingly vindictive style of governance. Francis presents so many challenges. Many of them are linguistic. Catholics who live under the reign of terror of Francis don't even think that they can advert to words, signifiers, symbiotics. That have a real pattern of use and a real signification, meaning, quiddity, essence. To say that somebody is vindictive, the way we all know Francis is, when he decided to, for example, punish, demote Cardinal Burke in the second year of his pontificate, getting ready for the 2014 Family Synod, it causes Santa Martis or Domus Santamartis, whatever it is. He was at dinner with the other cardinals, and he was so mad that Cardinal Burke had circulated a book to all the cardinals in anticipation of the synod, which vindicates Jesus's clear teaching on divorce. You can't get a divorce. You can't receive the Eucharist if you get a divorce. Francis wanted to overturn Jesus's teaching on divorce, and did, for the time being. He Passed out from his chair. He was red and shaking with rage. This is widely reported. You've chosen to forget it. He was red and shaking with rage. For nine minutes, he was on the floor. Nine or ten minutes. And they some thought he was dead. He, he is known from his days in Argentina to being such a man given over to a spirit of wrath and rage that these fits are a well-known habit. Well, they might not be habit in terms of daily or weekly, but when he's upset, he is very upset. That is a vindictive man. To to throw the adverb seemingly in as if it needs to be there to take the sting off of the adjective, vindictive, is silly, useless, pointless. It's it's um inefficient bootstrapping bad writing is made of of um quick use of adjectives you should do with uh, sorry adverbs you should do with your the rest of your writing what you'd seek to do with adverbs and all it it's doing is i was just trying to critique this letter but i'm just i'm i'm setting up for the thing i want to end with i'll, I'll get to the seven points in a second The seven real critiques, that's the real purpose of this thing. I'm just trying to show epistemically we're all tongue-tied. Our guts are twisted up in knots. Our brains are twisted up in knots. What do you do when it's not just seven critiques of Pope Benedict, who mostly seemed to have the church's good in mind? I don't know why he left. No one does. Fully. Sorry, from few people on the planet Earth. But I, I... Other than that, you know, if you critique Benedict, you get less tongue-tied because you know your fellow travelers. With Francis, because all of us intuit the Rothschildiness of this pontificate, they were like, oh, wow, I'm actually trying to be respectful of someone who comes across as an enemy to Holy Mother Church from within. I mean, I'm not saying he is, seemingly. I'm making a bigger claim, so I'll, I'll, I'll tend it with that term. I'll mitigate the force of the adjective with that adverb. But when you say, look, he's he's a well-known, vindictive guy, all of the people who knew him in Buenos Aires say he's vindictive. All the people that um, have been interviewed by Henry Sear, vindictive. It's a well-known trait. Catholic historians, when they tend to, um, biographies of famous Roman emperors that were famously vindictive, they don't say seemingly All they mean is, well, I can't peek inside this guy's soul. Why are we extending the courtesy of a well-known characteristic and mitigating it as if it's detraction to say this is well-known, this is public. This is open and notorious, as we say in the law, in property law. Open and notorious. He is an openly, notoriously vindictive man. He's never returned to Argentina for a a reason. It's a big story that he's never returned to his Argentina. He's so well-known as a vindictive autocrat there. He has such a bad reputation there. The stories abound. I remember a lot doing this show, but I also realized that I tend to forget all the Buenos Aires stories I've heard that are well substantiated. You don't need seemingly. Carelessness in matters of law, intolerance for even disrespectful disagreement. He didn't say seemingly intolerant. No, and you don't need to. Now, the second big point here is a a pattern of ambiguity in matters of faith and morals causing confusion among the the faithful. Now, um, Charles Pope is the one that coined this term weaponized ambiguity in regard to Francis. And uh, Taylor Marshall and I took it and we popularized it even further. Weaponized ambiguity back on the TNT days. That was in 2018 when the gloves and the mask were still being sort of taken off. I don't know if you've ever been in a street fight and a guy starts taking off his watch and fidgeting with. It's a common thing. It's kind of like, all right, we're, we're fighting, but we're not fighting yet. Between Amoris Latitia in April of 2016, and I would say February 18th of 2016, when Francis said that um, Catholics can use condoms if they're in South America and they're afraid of Zika virus. And twenty summer of 2018, the gloves were coming off. The mask was two-thirds of the way down. But Taylor and I were like, he's still cloaking stuff in ambiguity. It's a, it's a very different world over the last five and a half, six years. Since that, since I think July of 2018, when we did our first show together. Maybe August. I think it was July. So this nearly six years ago. The mask has come all the way off, all the way off. Even in the nearly four years since I've been here in Mississippi, the mask has come completely off. It's still kind of hanging at the bottom of the chin strap. Francis' mask is now off. His pattern of disrupting faith and morals, causing confusion among the faithful, is no longer accomplished by means, by way of weaponized ambiguity. It's just not. Now, there is still one moment, one key step in each new gambit of anti-doctrine that he releases that does involve some ambiguity, but it's more clear, it's definitive. Last show I said it's ambiguous but definitive. He goes back and forth, maybe I will, maybe I won't, female deacons, no, female deacons, yeah, female deacons, no, but he'll end on, you have the only correct interpretation of Amoris Letitia, Buenos Aires bishops, when you say, adultery, remarried adulterers can go get communion. That's the law in the church now, as long as Francis is Pope, assuming that he is. Okay, we. that's not ambiguous. He used ambiguity to get to that definitiveness, but he did put the period on and he waited all the way until late 2016 to start being definite, to put a period on his um, sinusoids of ambiguity, you know, like a sine wave up, down, yes, no, yes, no, I won't do communion for divorce and civil remarried, I will, I won't, I will, I won't, I will, he sends Cardinal Casper out there in 2015 to say he won't, he will, I fell out of favor, now he will, now he won't, but then he puts the period on it, and it's done. Same thing with SS unions same thing with um, um, condom use, let people debate it, and then put the period on, no, we said it, same thing, it's going to be with female deacons, but it depends how long he lives, But he's going to accomplish as many as the Golan agenda items as he can. And whereas the first five years of the pontificate, he would go, I won't, I will, I won't, I will, I won't, and he'd just keep it going. Starting in late 2016, crystallizing in 17, 18, 19, he started to stop the endlessness of deliberation, which had a... Callousing effect on our consciences. And he started to be definitive at the end of that period of up, down, up, down, up, down. So I, I take issue with, with the amb- I don't I don't say he's, he uses weaponized ambiguity never-endingly anymore. It's a means to an end, and he does end up being definitively anti-doctrinal. Very, very clearly, very inarguably. Um and my third little point here with this paragraph is the result today is a church more fractured than at any time in her recent history you know, come on it's her history i'm a church history teacher long time it's her history it's not a recent history arianism and its ensuing heresies the sort of post arian overcompensations of monophysitism nestorianism apollinarianism which followed all within about 125 years were not being pushed as deliberate errors. It was early in church history. Everyone was attempting to understand the mystery of the Trinity, the hardest thing to understand. Seemingly a circular square at times, but not. Difficult, legitimate, heartfelt difficulty. I'm not saying the heretics there were not obdurate. They were. But also not being endorsed by popes with with um, one or two exceptions, and the endorsement was dithering and appears to be sin- sincerely born of error. This is not the case with Francis. Okay, so they come around to saying the task, uh, and then we're going to get to the seven critiques. The task of the next pontificate must therefore be one of recovery and reestablishment of truths that have been slowly obscured or lost among many Christians. These include, but are not limited to such basics as the following. No one is saved except through and only through Jesus Christ, as he himself made clear. No one. B, God is merciful, but also just, and is intimately concerned with every human life. He forgives, but he also holds us accountable. He is both Savior and Judge. He is merciful, but his mercy did not save Judas. He damned Judas, Holy Scripture tells us. He will damn those who choose to follow wow. Judas. And because of that, okay, we know that He will judge us accordingly, justly. He is called. In the Catholic tradition, the just judge. In the scriptural tradition, the just judge. C, man is God's creature, not a self-invention, a creature not merely of emotion and appetites, but also of intellect, free will, and of eternal destiny. Geez, always good to reiterate. I'm not, not exactly sure why. Um, I'm sure it's a good reason. the II felt the need to emphasize this point as much as A and B d unchanging objective truths about the world and human nature exist and are knowable through divine revelation and the exercise of reason. Human nature does not change. Let me take an example that's only now becoming coming into focus in the in Francis's um Sniper rifle, sniper rifle scope is something he might be attacking this year. He's he's shown himself to be a feminist in the church. He said the church needs to demasculinize, even though the church is inherently, um, it's demographically masculine. It's a, a bimodal patriarchy. Two modes, the clerical patriarchy ruled by bishops and priests who can only be men. And a lay patriarchy by priest-prophet-king of each household, JP two said that, you know, the home is the ecclesiola, and men, a man rules each home, each ecclesiola. So, yes, the church is receptive in reference to the expressivity of Christ. It's passive in regard to the activity of Christ, its groom. And Francis played upon this ambiguously. But it's an error to say that, therefore, the populace of the church, the places of power, will be female. Just because the church is female in relation to Christ. Female just means passive. Christ is active. Think of even the the generative act, the marital act. This passive-active distinction abides. Expressive, receptive. The church is all male. Patriarchs. Clerical patriarchs are the bishops. Household patriarchs are the men. That's the church. And Francis has posited that human nature changes. That it's different in God's day. um, In all those places in St. Paul that you guys have heard me rail about time and again. Women, St. Paul says, women were created for man. Man was created for God. Woman is the glory of man. Man is the glory of God. Woman was made from man's rib. Why? Because if she was his equal, she would have been made from his head. All the patristics say this. If she was his slave, she would have been made from his feet. She's made from his rib to show that she's under his headship. He's in charge of her, they're not equals. And she's there to guard his heart and be his best friend. Woman was was created for man. That is a fundamental anthropological condition circumscribing what you might call the human condition. That doesn't change. And therefore, woman should submit to her husband in all things except mortal sin. As St. Paul says three times in Holy Scripture, Woman is to submit in all ways. Woman is to stay home, as the Roman catechism says. She should love to stay home, should never go out, except when compelled by necessity to leave, and should always have her husband's permission. You know, remember when everyone went apeshit when I, when I cited the Roman catechism, the one teaching on the duties of wives? There are only two universal catechisms. The 1990s one doesn't address this, so it doesn't abrogate this teaching. The Catechism of the Council of Trent says it. Everyone went nuts when I said this to Matt Fradd and then Trent Horn. I repeated it to both of them in late 2019. I was just citing the catechism. And you guys are, have been so overwhelmed by this false anthropology that human nature changes, being pushed by Francis and, and the Salt-Golan people before him. Well, that was human nature then. Human nature now is different. No. Man is man. Woman is woman. We're opposites. We're complementarian. We both have dignity. That means God loves us equally. We're totally different in rank. Woman was created for man. Man was created for God. That's First Timothy. Woman is the glory of man. Man is the glory of God. Get it through your head and you will have a good life. A good married life. I'm, I'm kind of assuming that I'm mainly talking to married people here. Well, Francis is now attacking this under the presupposition that human nature changes. Same thing with divorce. Oh, if Jesus really understood our day, he would understand that he should allow divorce. That doesn't make sense. Human nature is, is now exactly what it was then. People joked. People got frustrated. People, when they were playing checkers, tried to cheat a little bit. People, when they were having debates and they saw they were getting beat, they started to fudge and hedge a little bit just like at, at your Thanksgiving dinner table. People, um, if they overate, they needed to kind of lay it off. People, when they got grouchy, they needed to take a little nap. Men and women got along probably probably better by practice, but got along exactly the same by nature. We've just changed our practices to correspond with something that's like anti-nature, anti-female nature. Talk about women as if they're men, as if they're other dudes. Most of the guys that contact me think that human nature is that men and women fight all the time. Very rarely do I fight with my wife. Very rarely are we frustrated with each other. Just because we know we're totally different, but best friends. Aristotle called. as Steph cites in her book, Aristotle calls this a friendship between unequals, husband and wife, it's a best friendship between unequals. Well, back in Jesus' day, things tended to work out, and there was, like, no divorces because people weren't challenging nature. Now everyone divorces because they're challenging nature, but Francis says human nature has changed a bit. Well, that's wrong. Uh, e, God's word recorded in Scripture is reliable and has permanent force. Francis has um, begun uh, changing E in reference to D. Remember? Ephesians chapter five, people saying a woman needs to submit to a man in all ways is bracketed in most Novus Ordo Catholic missiles, literally bracketed. And it says priests are encouraged not to read this or something like that. Can you believe that? To be a Christian is to be a patriarchist. If you're not a patriarchist, you're not a Christian. You're not really, if you're not a Christian, you're not a patriarchist either, but that's another question. Guys that try to be patriarchists from a Judeo-Muslim perspective or a red pill perspective aren't doing real patriarchy. But Francis is changing scripture. And you can't do that. God's word is reliable, has permanent force. Those attributes people want to ascribe to the Pope even when he's not teaching ex cathedra, permanent force, Infallible, reliable? Nope. Scripture has that. Tradition, capital T Tradition had that. Not a pope just teaching through an encyclical or whatever. He has to be making an ex catheter statement. And by my count, it's sort of academic, which is weird. By my count, we've only had one of those every millennium. Two total, one every millennium. And they're both on Marian dogmas. And have reliable force and had reliable force before they were even ex gathered or statements, which is the whole point. F sin is real and its effects are lethal. This is Francis's main attack, saying sin is almost never real. And the few times it is, its effects probably aren't lethal because people are so have so many subjective conditions going on that mitigate sin, Francis says. So how do you ever, how do you ever say that just because something's grave matter? It's a mortal sin. And and G, his church has both the authority and the duty to make disciples of all nations. G has been another direct assault of Francis, who says that it is a, quote, sin against ecumenism to convince another of your Christian faith. That is a direct quote. He's repeated it several times. His lying Pope-splainers sidetracked you when he said this, that it's a, um, a kind of a mortal sin to convince another's, uh, another person of your Christian faith. Convince means intellectual appeal. They said that this meant by force. They said he, he used the word proselytize. Once or twice he did. But of, in other cases, Francis said literally convince intellectually another of your faith. That's a sin. To teach a, a Jew or a Buddhist or a Muslim, your faith is irrational and self-contradictory. Look at the reason. Jesus is the Logos man, and therefore, our faith never contradicts reason. Christianity. That's a sin, Pope Francis said. That's why G is so important. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to Francis if he does not preach the gospel. In the many times that he winds up in the hospital, as yesterday, I, Steph and I just start talking. This man, Francis, has said he's afraid of pain due to sickness, particularly deathbed sickness. I feel bad for him. I pray for him. You should too. He's, he's talked at great length about his fear of pain. It's one of his greatest fears, like sickness pains, from serious sickness. This makes me pity him. I want God to have pity on him. I want Francis to convert to the Roman Catholic magisterium before it's too late. Pray for him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. World without end, amen. For the Pope. Pray for him. He's old and sick all the time. He will not be okay if he dies in this status. The difference between him and and people say, well, I'm a sinner too. Yeah, all of us are sinners. But hopefully you're going to confession. Well, he has these major, obvious inarguable public sins of detraction, calumny against the gospel, not bringing the gospel. Woe to Francis if he does not preach the gospel. More than that, more than just being silent on it, he has tried to subvert it. So let's get to the seven critiques or the seven improvements on this pontificate. First, real authority is damaged by authoritarian means in its exercise. The Pope is a successor of Peter, and the guarantor of church unity. But he is not an autocrat. I've been saying this as a papal minimalist this entire pontificate. We don't want an autocrat of our making. That's not the way God fashioned leadership. This is what I'm telling the post-liberals like Saurabh Bamari. Read Thomas, read Bellarmine, read Augustine. Even the state can become a thief like a bandit on the road if it overtaxes. Read Suarez, Read Juan de Mariana. Read De Soto. These guys, Catholic scholars, our best Catholic scholars on politics, follow Aristotle. No autocrats. They didn't follow Plato, who wanted an autocrat. God does apportion power, therefore, some aspect of Integralism is true, even in the secular state, should 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 as much as it can prop up the Christian religion. That's true. And the Pope is a kind of, a, a, the one leader in the world who must be a religious ruler. But he's still not, he's not a tyrant. He's not an autocrat. He cannot change church doctrine. And he must not invent or alter the church's discipline arbitrarily. Now, that's interesting because he has a plenary power over discipline that he doesn't have over doctrine. So defining arbitrary becomes a, a question begging, a petitio principio. When you hold a plenary power, I don't even know what the word arbitrarily means anymore. So I'm more giving than than Deimos too on this, and that's why I argued I don't— I, I, intensely dislike the Novus Ordo, and I love the TLM, and I wish every Mass, and I know every Mass will eventually be a TLM again in the Roman Rite at some point. Maybe not in my life. But but Francis has a plenary power as number 266 over discipline, so I'm not even worried about that. I'm far more worried about the doctrine he's trying to change. He governs the church, he the Pope, collegially with his brother bishops in local dioceses. Does this guy sound like a minimalist, like Timothy J. Gordon here? Sorry for using my name in the third person. Whoever Deimos II is sounds like what I've been telling you. He governs the church collegially with his brother bishops in local dioceses. Yes, he has a universal jurisdiction over them, particularly in matters of discipline, but he, he governs collegially. And he does so always in faithful continuity with the word of God, in church teaching. So he doesn't really have power there in the sense that the postmodern, post-liberal understanding of authority wants to make all leaders into autocrats, right-wingers into autocrats. We're supposed to fear power. We're not supposed to want to wield it. Think of Aragorn with the, the one ring. That's me. I don't want to use it. I don't. I don't want really any man to have plenary authority. Even the Pope over doctrine. All these post-liberal right wingers—they want—they they're Boromir. They want to use the One Ring, the Ring of Power. Well, if we have it, we can bend it to our will. You can't. No man is meant to wield power the way Francis does, or autocrats who uh, rule over secular polities do. It never works out well. New paradigms and unexplored new paths that deviate from either are not of God. A new pope must restore the hermeneutic of continuity in Catholic life and reassert Vatican II's understanding of the papacy's proper role. Now here, I'll say this. I'll say this. If we're talking about Lumen Gentium, paragraph 25, some confusion legitimately arises from it not saying enough. And I'm going to talk about that in closing. Lumen Gentium 25. Okay, so table that. I do think, even though Vatican II's documents are all sound, there's no heresy there. Lumen Gentium 25, which is not even one of the things the trads tend to bitch about. I'm the trad that never liked Lumen Gentium 25, even in 2013. I was like, I don't like this. Other trads tend to complain about typical stuff I I dislike, because I think it was weaponized ambiguity and has been abused. And it was intentionally abused even beforehand. It was cooked up. That doesn't make it heresy. Lumen Gentium 25 is a little different. It needs gloss. It needs a gloss, an explanatory gap covering. We'll talk about that as we close. The second practical observation, which flows from the task listed above those, those kind of pre-goals, just as the church is not, this is number two, just as it's not an autocracy, neither is she a democracy, which is weird because it addresses how Francis does two seemingly opposite things at once. He's more of an autocrat than Leo Thirteenth or Pius X in ways where you shouldn't be an autocrat. But he claims simultaneously to be more of a Democrat with this synodal business. I want to just let the Germans do what they want to do, which is the opposite of being an autocrat than than Leo X or uh, Leo XIII or Pius X ever would have been. they are two extremes. He's more autocratic when he should be more passive, and he's more democratic when he should be more active. It, which is really bad. It expresses a real will. It's not just that he's getting one thing wrong. He's, get, he's literally going left when he should go right and right when he should go left. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. She is his church. She is Christ's mystical body made up of many members. We have no authority to refashion her teachings to fit more comfortably with the world. And There should be no ambiguity here. This sentence's subject is we. We have no authority to refashion her teachings to fit more comfortably with the world. If you ask a Pope-splainer, they'll say, yeah, but the Pope does have authority to refashion her teachings to fit with the world. No, he does not. This is clear from the magisterium and common sense. The Pope does not have authority to refashion her teachings. Moreover, the Catholic census fidelium is not a matter of opinion surveys, nor even the view of a baptized majority. By the way, Francis has never used um, the opinions of a baptized majority to do what he wants to do. He claims to be doing that. And even that's facially a flaw to use the opinion surveys that come from a majority. But he can't garner a majority. What he does is Synodal Phase 1 in 21 and 22 he said, hey, do you guys want, um, you know, women deacons? And everyone was like, no. All the parishes said no. In 2014, 2015, he was like, this is the family synod. Let's hear from you guys. Do you people, like holding the mic out to the crowd, do you guys want divorce for the communion for the divorce and still so married?" remarried? And everyone was like, no. Aside from a few of the St. Gallen types that put him in power, mainly in Northern Europe, they were saying yes, but they were the minority cooked the books after he took these opinion surveys and he tried to make it seem in 2014 and 2015, then again in 21 and 22 with the current ongoing synod as if it was a majority. And even that would be wrong. Even if 99% of Catholics wanted him to do some novelty, like female deacons or communion for adulterers, unrepentant adulterers, that would be wrong. But that's not even what he got. Most Catholics just want him to be the Pope. You don't really have any authority over doctrine. You don't, sorry. Papal minimalism, you can't change anything. Most Catholics told him that, and he he just cooked the books to make it seem like a popular, a, a vox, popular, vox populi moment. It derives only from those who genuinely believe and act, actively practice or at least sincerely seek to practice. This is the census fidelium the faith and the teachings of the church. Third, ambiguity is neither evangelical nor welcoming. Now, again, this pertains more to the early stages of the first half of the Francis Pontificate. I don't think he's ambiguous anymore. Masks off. Rather, ambiguity breeds doubt and feeds schismatic impulses. The church is a community not just of word and sacrament, but also of creed. Binding, unchanging, Ideas fixed. What we believe helps us to define and sustain us. Thus, doctrinal issues are not burdens imposed by unfeeling doctors of the law, phrase Francis uses, um, to liken to the opposite of doctors of the law, Pharisees. Pharisees who taught the law but broke it. Jesus says, do as they taught, not as they acted. Francis says, don't do as they taught. Nor are they, ambiguities, cerebral sideshows to the Christian life, uh, sorry, the, the doctrines. On the contrary, these doctrines are vital to living a Christian life authentically because they deal with the applications of the truth, and the truth demands clarity, not ambivalent nuance. From the start, the current pontificate has resisted the evangelical force and intellectual clarity of its immediate predecessors. The dismantling and repurposing of Rome's John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family, and the marginalizing of texts like Veritatis Splendor by uh, Morse Letizia, suggest an elevation of compassion compass- in scare quotes and emotion at the expense of reason. Emotion's not in scare quotes. Compassion and emotion at the expense of reason, justice, truth. For a creedal community, this is both unhealthy and profoundly dangerous. I hope you understand from all the Rules for Retrogrades episodes you've ever watched on Amoris Laetitia why this is the third point and why it's such a banger of a point. Number four, the Catholic Church, in addition to word, sacrament, and creed, is also a community of law. There is a political, legal, codex which binds us and makes us a kind of res publica, a public thing. Lawfare binds us, makes us Catholics, global, universal, around the world. Canon law orders church life, harmonizes its institutions, its procedures, and guarantees the rights of believers. Among the Marx, of the current pontificate are its excessive reliance on the motu proprio as a tool for governance and a general carelessness and distaste for canonical detail. The motu proprio is a despot's shortcut when it's used as much as Francis uses it. That's what they're saying. that's uh, That's my paraphrase. And it's absolutely banging spot on. Again, as with ambiguity of doctrine... Disregard for canon law and proper canonical procedure undermines confidence in the purity of the church's mission. This paragraph here, I think, is the tell of the author to be none other than Cardinal Raymond Leo Burke, the highest trained canon law officer in the church, in the world, former prefect for the Apostolic Signatura, highest canon lawyer in the church in Dostoevsky's day his position was called the grand inquisitor and i think i think the insistence on the return to proper procedural due process in canon law instead of the substantive due process of the mot proprio if i can make a, a 14th amendment analogy to the american constitution I think I'm I'm pretty proud of that analogy. I think that betrays the author more than any of the other six points to be none other than Raymond Cardinal Leo Burke. Number five, the church, as John 23 so beautifully described her, is mater et magistra, the mother and teacher of humanity, not its dutiful follower. The defender of man is the subject of history, not its object. The subject of history, not its object. Go study your Thomas to note well the dichotomy between the subject of history and the object of history. She is the bride of Christ. Her nature is personal, supernatural, and intimate, not merely institutional. She can never be reduced to a system of flexible ethics. Situation ethics, represented by Francis and his Jesuit pals. Or sociological analysis and remodeling to fit the instincts and appetites and sexual confusions of an age. Every one of his changes involves a sexual confusion of our age. Getting a headache. I get a headache lots from these. I don't know if it's from the headphones or from the, the subject matter. My friend Nick Stumphouser, the director, says he would get heartache from the subject of his first six films. His seventh, what a woman is, is not going to give him heartache. It's going to be a beautiful romantic tale that'll come out fall of 2024. One of the key flaws here in point number five in the current pontificate is its retreat from a convincing theology of the body and its lack of a compelling Christian anthropology. Precisely at a time when attacks on human nature and identity from transgenderism to transhumanism are mounting. I wish, would to God, I pray God, that there had been an inclusion of from transgenderism to homo sapienism to feminism. From third to second to first iterations of Gender dysphoria. But alas, it wasn't there. Number six, global travel served a pastor like JP2 so well because of his unique personal gifts and the nature of the times. But the times and circumstances have changed. The church in Italy and throughout Europe, the historic home of the faith, is in crisis. The Vatican itself urgently needs a renewal of its morale, a cleansing of its institutions, procedures, and personnel, and a thorough reform of its finances to prepare for a more challenging future. I freely admit I have the fewest categories which correspond with the intent of of paragraph six here. I understand what he's saying, but I have the least to say about it here. These are not small things. They demand... The presence, direct attention, and personal engagement of any new pope. Fewest categories here. I always tell you guys, parish orphans and retrogrades, to the best I can, I've a, if the Lord may permit me here. Number six, I'm, I am haven't really had any profound insights beyond what was written on the page. Number seven, and finally, the College of Cardinals exists to preside to provide senior counsel to the Pope and to elect his successor upon his death. That service requires men of clean character. Cardinal Tucho Fernandez, not a clean-charactered man. He's a perv. Cardinal Coco Palmario, one of Francis's closest advisors, caught at a homo sapien cocaine party issued out the back door, no pun intended, by Carabinieri and Vatican police, allowed to go from a cocaine and rollerblading party. Let's call it that. That service requires men of clean character. Wink, wink. Strong theological formation, mature leadership experience, and personal holiness. Wink, wink. We need holiness. The church needs holiness now and always. Ever and always has it been. Ever and always shall it be. Ever and anon. So it shall be by and by. We need men of clean character. Men. Not women. We need men of strength, dignity, holiness, clean character. To be leaders. And we need men, not women, to lead the domestic church, the Ecclesiolus. And of strength, clean character, virtue, and honor. To lead their families. Not to listen to their families. In the sense of a straw poll. But to lead their families. It also requires a Pope willing to seek advice. And then to listen. Which is also what men should do if they have um, smart, smart wives who are submissive. To, to come to the College of Cardinals. The bride. College of Cardinals is like the bride. Come to your bride. They're not screeching at you from the back seat or the passenger seat, but hey, I'm legitimately torn here. Doesn't happen all the time, but what do you think about this? And the College of Cardinals can, without fear of rebuke, say, okay, here's what I think you should do, and I I don't think you're on this path. I think you should alter the course. But they offer it, like I say about a good wife, and then Whatever you do, as long as you, as long as you do it in good faith, you're still the leader. That's another thing that modern men don't understand, misunderstand about the nature of power. If you go to a collegial institution like the wife institution or the cardinals, this does not mean you're ceding your authority. It just means go with legitimacy of intent. Seek advice to listen. It's unclear to what degree this applies in the Pope Francis pontificate. The current pontificate has placed an emphasis on diversifying the college. I don't know what that means. I wish, I wish the author hadn't used vague, semi-woke terms like diversifying. I don't think the college is diversified at all. I think the college is all people that Francis figured would, after his death, continue to lend to his agenda. The current pontificate has placed an emphasis on diversifying the college, but it has failed to bring cardinals together in regular consistories designed to foster genuine collegiality and trust among brothers. As a result, many of the voting electors in the next conclave will not really know each other and thus may be more vulnerable to manipulation. In the future, if the college is to serve its purposes, the cardinals who inhabit it need more than a red succhetto and a ring. Today's College of Cardinals should be proactive about getting to know each other. They need more donut brunches or what have you to better understand their particular particular views regarding the Church, their local Church situations, and their personalities, which impact their consideration of the next Pope. Re okay, so that's the end of the seven. Kind of like number five, I have less to say on that one. I had more to say on one, two, three, four, and six. Final note, nota bene, if you will, the readers will require, will quite reasonably ask why this text is anonymous. The answer could be evident from the tenor of today's Roman environment. Candor is not welcome, and its consequences can be unpleasant. Cardinal Burke, wink, wink. And yet these thoughts could continue for many more paragraphs, noting especially the current pontificate's heavy dependence on the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, The recent problematic work by the DDF's Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, Tucho, the perv himself, the Mac Daddy, and the emergence of a small oligarchy of confidants with excessive influence within the Vatican, all despite synodality's decentralizing claims, among other things. Remember when I noted he's both too democratic and too despotic at once, too autocratic at once. He's not really both of those things. This is the Peronism of Francis, where at times he uses democratic impulse and other times despotic impulse in order to effectuate a goal. Exactly because of these matters, the cautionary reflections noted here may be useful in the months ahead, meaning he doesn't necessarily believe that Francis will survive 2024. It is hoped that this contribution will help guide much-needed conversations about what the Vatican should look, look like in the next pontificate. Okay. Now. A related discussion. A related discussion is... That which ensued um, this morning between, where is it? Let me, it was Jay Dyer and Trent Horn and myself. Jay was asking. Trent, if you wanted to debate the intimate relationship between the Vatican and the intelligence agencies around the world, r- more recently, uh, in geopolitical power, and let me know if you still won't do a debate on this topic. And and Trent responded, hey, this isn't really my area, the, the geopolitics of the Vatican. It's not really my, it's not my area either. Um. And I ju- and, and Trent said, hey, why don't you go to Tim to debate this? And I just said, well, here's why I'm not much interested in debating this. I'm I'm always down for a debate. But where did I write a response? Let me see. I said, for the record, my debate disinterest stems from the fact that Pastori Turnus from Vatican I does nothing to preclude Borgia popes or, as Jim Caviezel has described Francis, Rothschild popes from taking power. Vatican I, at least it's Pastor turnus talking to Jay a little bit mm, privately, does nothing. All it establishes is an ex cathedra infallibility that's been used, in my estimation, twice. Some people say four or five times. So at most it's twice a millennium, assuming it's four times, right? I say I say two times, which averages like once a millennium. Not a big deal. Francis never invoked it. I said Catholics have found bizarre ways to extend Pastor Turnus infallibility outside of its once per millennium exercise. I firmly believe in papal minimalism. More firmly than I think anyone out there, very minimalist view. Uh, aside from maybe the. Author of this letter, Deimos II, seems to agree with me. Real minimalist there, Deimos II. I think that's Cardinal Burke. Yeah, aside, the Pope can do what he wants with discipline. But can do nothing with doctrine. Just sit on it, defend it. Can't change it at all. I firmly believe in papal minimalism, and also that a post-Francis Vatican III, subsequent to now, will clarify Vatican I and Vatican II along a programmatically minimalist trajectory sometime in the not distant future. This is me responding to Trent saying, hey, why don't you get Tim for a debate, Jay? And I'm saying, this is why I'm not interested in debating it. Because I agree with Jay, who's researched this more than I, that Francis and some of the other popes, particularly in the late 20th century, may have been part of a deep church, deep state, Axis of Wes Wef evil in one way or another that doesn't challenge the pontificate. It's its reason for being. In other words, I say free will enables any man, including a pope, to align himself with a one-world Borgia or Wef agenda. Free will. If we've had evil popes before. Maybe not as hell-bent on changing doctrine as Francis, but we've had evil popes before. If you can admit that, Catholics, why can't you admit? That seems to be what's at work here. And Deimos, too, seems to agree. And Deimos, too, seems to be Cardinal Burke. If I said, if I didn't believe this, that free will enables any man, including a pope, to align himself with evil or a one-world agenda, if I didn't believe this, then obviously Francis would present me with existential dread. And um then Jay wrote to me. I won't say exactly what he wrote. He said, Oh yeah, it's not it's not um pastor turnus, it's four places. Then Jay knows his stuff here. Um I'm I'm differing strongly on interpretation, but he says it's four places in Denzinger. I said, send them to me. I'll look into them and I'll report back to you guys. Where where it's more like ordinary exercises of papal magisterium, have a, a kind of charism of safety or surety or People say infallibility, but it can't be. Or else, ex catheter statements would be a distinction without a difference. If everything the Pope does, is very, very simple. Pastor Aeternus, which is the main document from Vatican I, establishes, it, and it uses the word only, that. It, and I did a show on this very recently. I, I outlined every single paragraph of Pastor Aeternus for you. I checked it in again. I checked in with it about a year and a half ago. It says a pope is only infallible when he is exercising this charism of ex cathedra statement. He's not infallible otherwise. There's no halfway between fallible and infallible. And I know, I, I think a lot of Catholics are very confused on this. Oh, there may be there's something between fallible and infallible. No. A statement is either guaranteed to be 100% true or it's not. And if it's not guaranteed to be 100% true, then it means it can be false. Now, I understand there's the Lumen gentium 25 confusion that seems to be applying itself only to the good popes or popes of goodwill or popes who are teaching alongside doctrine or bulwarking a well-known truth, not a novelty. That seems to be the, the kind of unspoken, tacit presupposition of Lumen gentium 25, which says that Anytime a Pope says anything, more or less, we have to receive it in a spirit of uh, uh, religious submission in our mind, in our, our our will. Sure, if the Pope is teaching alongside the church, but literally I could not receive, I've said this countless times. I'm saying this to Jay, I'm saying this to Trent, I'm saying this to other Catholics who are papal maximalists. They They all have different views on this, the people I just mentioned, but because of the way that the, the Catholic view of epistemology, the mind's workings work, we form phantasms. So if Pope Francis were to teach non-infallibly that two and two are five, and he's he's taught morally that two and two are five several times now in encyclicals. He said, you know, basically two and two are five. I know this is contradictory. When I actually go to even, a, if I try to, Take lumen gentium 25 at its word. I should uh, should demonstrate a kind of religious submission of mind. Okay, two plus two. I have the phantasm of two apples in my head being added to two other apples. These are, because we are moderate realists, we have what Thomas calls representations, phantasms. Of those two and two apples, I'm joining them in my mind. I can see now, how many do I see? Four. I can't see five. We're not nominalists. So to construct, to construe Lumen 25 in the, the strict sense of religious submission of intellect would be to make a distinction without a difference of the ex cathedra infallibility charism of... Uh, Pastor Eternus. If you say, "Well, yeah, the pope is only infallible when he makes an ex catheter claim, which he's only done two, three, four, five times at most," but he's basically infallible according to Lumen Gentium twenty-five, because anything he says, no matter how absurd, you have to ratify in the what we call the phantasms in your mind, the sensory sensory impressions as they go into making propositional truth claims in your mind. We know that must be wrong. We know that reception of Lumen Gentium 25 must be incorrect. I can prove it. Because Pope Francis has taught things that violate the principle of contradiction. Two and two being five. And four at the same time. Two and two are fourness. So it's definitional. can't be fourness and fiveness. So I cannot intellectually submit under this heading of religious submission that two and two are five. I cannot submit that adultery is both licit as a condition for communion and illicit as a condition for communion at the same time. I cannot. Some. I can't. I can't form those phantasms. It can't be. It's not because I have some deficiency. I have plenty of deficiencies, but that ain't one of them. I cannot form the the proposition in my in my head that condoms are both always and everywhere illicit and sometimes licit, which Francis taught on February the eighteenth, twenty sixteen, in reference to the Zika virus. I cannot. Hold those two contraries together. One has to win out, and my phantasms do it for me because they're re they're representations of the truth. So Lumen Gentium twenty five is true, but only on, with a certain presupposition, and we know that even before. And, and I that's why I say Vatican three is going to clarify this. Lumen Gentium twenty five, all this religious submission of intellect and will bid business. The intellect literally already parses what two and two are. Unless I have some intellectual deficiency, I already know it's four before I go and I solve the problem. If I'm just seeing two apples and two apples correctly being added, the fourness are literally moderately real in my brain. The phantasms are little or apples that are already there. To, if, if it's hard for you to do two and two is four, then it just means your processing is slower. It means your phantasms, you're collecting your phantasms more slowly. But you can't make them five and you can't be like, okay, well, maybe in my will, I submit to Francis, but not in my intellect or in my intellect, but not in my will, because your will is rational. Your your will in this sense follows the apprehension of your intellect. One of the three Thomistic duties of your intellect is apprehension. This is all we're dealing with. So, Lumen Gentium 25, it's not that it's wrong, it's that it's right, and it must be according to a certain principle. Now, Jay Dyer has promised to send me those four places in Denzinger where he he interprets an ordinary kind of infallibility. And I said, that's true. The ordinary magisterium can be infallible, but Jay, it's only when it's habitually held and taught. What is that? And he said, yeah, he said something like that. And I said, well, send them to me and I'll, I'll look at them. But remember, the whole purpose of an ex cathedra claim is that it is immediately rendered infallible. You speak a truth into existence, sort of. Think of it that way, even though it was already true. You speak its surety of propositional validity into existence. That's the charism of infallibility. It doesn't count as the charism of infallibility if one pope teaches something and it's not immediately a valid truth claim. If 100 or 200 or 300 more years of of papal teaching has to kind of ratify it before it becomes an infallible teaching... Which is which is how the ordinary Magisterium works it's it's complex but then it, it's not truly infallible you're gonna have just some goofball sort of outlier Pope teach something try and Francis has tried lots of this try some novelty doctrinally speaking and no one will pick up on it number 267 is not going to pick up on what Francis and maybe 267 will but 268 269 270 won't so through the ordinary habitual, uptaking of that teaching the popes ratify something slowly not just the one pope but that's different that's different if Francis tries some outlier teachings which he has and there have been lots of popes that have tried outlier teachings that no other popes took up that's not infallibility that's not genuine infallibility genuine speak of truth into existence infallibility means ex cathedra ex nihilo Practically, from out of nowhere, you speak something into existence. Now, we know this is not true with the third and the fourth Marian dogmas. Then the middle, 19th and middle 20th century were ex cathedra statemented into ontological form by popes because they were always taught. You can go back and see. The fathers always had these. The medievals always had these. Um. Pope Pius and Pius, who spoke these third and fourth Marian dogmas into ex cathedra infallibility, um, were just taking a shortcut. They weren't; it wasn't truly ex nihilo. But I'm just, I'm, I'm. By way of contrast, think of an ex cathedra statement, the one true, immediately infallible form of the pontifical exercise of his magisterium. It's contrasting sharply with this other thing that like, oh, if enough times popes A, B, C, D, E, and F across a broad enough chronological swath of time teach some doctrine that hadn't really been seen before, it can become a doctrine. Yeah, but that's not infallible. It becomes infallible, but it it just becomes gradually recognized. That's different. That's habitual teaching, not true infallibility. True infallibility requires immediacy. And that's what I'm like, and, and if and, and if Francis hasn't made any ex-Catheter statements, he's made this many, a goose egg, then I say, assuming that no Pope picks up on his, I think, goofy, worldly, pachamama environmentalism, borderline earth worship, not quite, if no other Popes pick up on that, then he taught something that is not Catholic teaching. But he hasn't violated his infallibility. That's just how ordinary magisterium works. So that's not a cope. That's just literally why Pastor Eternus is the big document in Vatican I. All right. Well, that's enough for for today. God bless you all. Be well. Take care of yourselves. Stay in the faith. Don't fly off the left or the right side of the bark. God is good. He's looking after us, He's just, He's not just merciful. Go to confession. He's just. He's not just merciful. He insists you go to confession and ask for forgiveness. He's ready to give it. Go to confession, guys. God bless you all. Stay on the bark. One true faith, Roman Catholicism, Deus of all.
1: Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is
0: with me.